Friends, as we continue along in our fall series of messages, focusing on the words of our Lord, not only the words that he, he taught authoritatively, but the incredible questions that he asked people. When we first see Jesus speaking, Jesus with a voice, we see him as a 12-year-old boy in the temple, and the elders were amazed at his wisdom from his questions. Because remember, in that culture, you couldn't teach publicly, you couldn't teach on things of God until you had some miles on the odometer or kilometers for you young people, until you had some road behind you, you'd live some life with God. And by 30 years old, you're out of, you're out of your short pants and wearing grown-up pants now, but 30 years old, you could teach publicly. That's how we know about the age Jesus was as he began his public ministry being baptized in the River Jordan, he was probably right at 30 years old. So he can now be accepted as a teacher and have that level of authority in their culture. But at 12, you're able to ask questions because at 12, you become of the age of accountability. For a young man, it was called bar mitzvah. You become a, a son of the law and you're expected to, to understand God's commands and follow them. For a young woman, that was a bat mitzvah, and, uh, and you too were now liable to follow God's commands. You could ask questions, but you couldn't teach. You couldn't give answers. Well, that habit of asking questions, it seems, Jesus took throughout his life, because as we said every week, the questions of Jesus far outnumber the direct answers he gave to people. But his questions were never to gain information for himself, for this is Jesus we're talking about. His questions were for the benefit of his hearers. They caused us to examine ourselves and what we thought and how we felt and how we were living. His questions showed such wisdom. But he asked practical questions as well. The normal questions that you ask in the course of any day. At our house, we'll ask questions like, what should we have for supper tonight? You know, some people are so organized, but those of you who have lived long enough, you know that you have prepared not hundreds, not thousands, tens of thousands of meals, and you're expected to keep coming up with a new menu all the time. What do we do? What do we do? It's just how life goes. We ask questions like that. What time is it? Normal questions. Well, this morning's question may seem kind of normal in that area, kind of mundane, But as all of Jesus' questions are, it touches the heart of the human condition. And what's more common, friends, to the human condition than tears, sadness, grief, loss, pain, mourning? We live in a broken world. It's not the world that God intended it to be, not a world of of beauty, a garden in harmony, man without sin, and death. We live in a fallen world. And so right at the heart of the human condition is pain and grief and loss. And we express those physically so often with our tears. We see that reflected in one of the Psalms of David. David was a man in touch with his emotions, not only because he was artistic and he was a a singer and songwriter. And those people seem to be able to get to the heart and then speak to your heart through their music and through their lyrics. In Psalm 6, David writes, I am worn out from my groaning. 
All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. All his troubles, all his foes surrounded him, and he expressed those with sleepless nights of weeping. Now this seems strange for a a strong man, a king to express, but this is the heart of humanity. David weeping in the watches of the night. But there's hope. And Jesus shows us the cause for that hope, even in the midst of our tears with today's question. Today's message is taken from it. I call it, why are you crying? Why are you crying? It's comical when we think of parents, you know, when they're disciplining a child and sometimes the tears start to flow before the punishment even arrives. And, you know, you've seen it on television and in skits and in sitcoms. And the father usually is the one upset. He says, oh, you're crying? I'll give you a reason to cry. And then he continues with the punishment. Oh, I remember that was that way when when uh, the big punishments came when we were boys. When it was a small thing, the, the rough tumble of having a bunch of kids at home, my mom handled it swiftly and with beautiful justice. But when it was a capital crime, something that went beyond mom's punishment, she passed judgment. The fatal words, wait till your father gets home. <laughs> and then we would hear my dad, you know, before we moved to California, I remember my dad bought a a motorcycle, the biggest motorcycle Honda made. Before the 750 came along, you motorcycle enthusiasts remember the Honda 450. Beautiful motorcycle. And we would hear that motorcycle coming up the hill and down the long driveway. And it was the sound of, it was sound of our doom approaching. Oh, you know. And before he even would hit the porch, the tears would start to flow. And oh, you know, we tried once to put a, a, a aluminum pie pan in the seat of our pants. That just made it worse, let me tell you. <laughs> it was quickly found out. But, uh, you know, I'm sure it must not have been good for my dad to get home and the kids are already crying. He says, okay, what's this about, you know? And he starts to already undo his belt and pull his belt off, you know? Oh, boy. I'll stop there before social service gets in touch with my dad down in Texas. So, Why are you crying? But you see from the picture, you're reminded of it, this is an Easter story. And to us, Easter's a happy day. Up from the grave he arose. But it didn't start that way. Easter started in darkness. Remember the, 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 the Sabbath that they were avoiding ended when it got light. The Sabbath began when it got dark. Now, the Sabbath day, and they had to stop because there was a Sabbath. This was now the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And that Sabbath, that Saturday in between started at sundown, and then it ends at sun up. And not when the physical orb is above the horizon, but they had a way of doing it. The rabbis would have threads. They would have a white thread and a black thread. And when it got light enough to tell them apart, it was sun up. And if you were in Jerusalem, you'd hear the shofar. They would blow the horn. The Sabbath is done. It's light enough. And they would do the same when it got dark enough. Time to keep the Sabbath. And so we know... It's just getting light, but it's still dark. That's how Easter began in darkness. But there's also confusion. Easter confusion and Easter tears. They were all present. 
on that early, early Sunday morning. Friends, open your Bibles today. We are going to be in John chapter 20. I love John because the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have been around for years already. The stories are well known. And not only did God, His Holy Spirit, lead John to, te- to add His Gospel, which includes the longer discourses and teachings of Jesus, but I know from the human aspect, God using human authors not only to speak his true, infallible, holy word, but we also see the human author reflected in it. And in John's stories, we often see it from his perspective. And here's something interesting. The events of John's Easter morning don't mesh easily with the stories in the synoptics. Because those are based on one another, and we always see the three women coming to the tomb to finish the burial preparation. And we see angels talking to them, the stone being rolled away, and then this just sort of ends, especially in the Gospel of Mark. But in John, from his point of view, the story begins when one of those women abandoned the other ones and ran to get him and Peter, and he rushed to the tomb. The only recorded event of apostles being at the empty tomb are Peter and John. And they're only there because one of the women went to get them. And it seems by this story that the woman didn't wait to hear from the angels. She just thought the tomb is open. Jesus is gone. There's trouble. And she went to get the men. It's fascinating. So John chapter 20, we're going to read a good portion of it. So follow along either in your Bible or on the screen. Easter confusion, Easter tears. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. That's how John always refers to himself. Never by name, the other disciple, the disciple Jesus loved. So we know right away he's speaking of himself. Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She's talking about the group of ladies, we. She's obviously abandoned ship and ran to get Peter and John because of the trouble that she's found. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Yeah, he's younger, he's stronger. He, I, I like the fact that John includes that. Yeah, Peter, the old slow fisherman, I outran him, no problem. And he reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips. Now, we see often in pictures the tomb is a tall thing with a giant stone. That's not how tombs of the first century were dug. Actually, the entrances were from waist high down, and the stones were often small and large like a cork in a bottle, which had to be shoved, and the stone rolled away. That Greek word actually doesn't mean roll like a ball. It means movement, often these special ceiling stones, very heavy, very difficult to move. So he knelt down and he looks in the tomb, but he did not go in. It says that he looked in and strips of linen were lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first 
He's really rubbing it into Peter. He also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They knew something had happened. And the way the cloths were lying, it wasn't torn apart like a grave robber. The cloths were gone. They were still there, neatly folded. But the body was gone. And so it seems now the men leave. They leave. But Mary, who had left the other women, who they're gone now as well, it seems now she's all alone there in the garden. The angels are there sometimes, and then other times they're not discernible. It seems when Peter and John went in, the two angels who had pronounced that he is not here, why do you look for the living among the dead? He has risen. They were not seen by Peter and John, but now they're seen again. We continue to read in John chapter 20, pick up the story in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. Easter confusion and Easter tears They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've put him. The women, remember, came to finish Jesus' burial. It was sudden. It was unfinished. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did the best they could. They loaded some spices in. They put him in Joseph's new tomb, and they left. But the preparation of a loved one's body was always left to the women of the family. And so we see the women who cared for the disciples. They were believing women of middle age. Some of them were actually mothers of the apostles, and oftentimes probably uh, Jesus' own mother had been part of that group as well. The women we see at the foot of the cross, Mary Magdalene, Magdala being a village just to the west of Capernaum, she was one of that group. Unfortunately, people make a lot about Mary Magdalene and they they treat her as if she was a prostitute and an immoral woman. All Scripture ever says is that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. And in her gratitude, she was one of those women who supported the travels and the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Unfortunately, as often is the case, an illiterate pope in the Middle Ages mixed the Marys up and conflated the two and mixed her up with the immoral woman who bathed Jesus' feet with her tears. And then for a thousand years, the Western church got it stuck in their head that Mary Magdalene was an immoral woman. And then over time, the the pagans in our society tried to twist the knife and make her somehow into Jesus' wife and so forth. You see that in the Da Vinci Code and all of these nonsense books like that. Mary Magdalene, delivered from demons, grateful to Jesus probably of the same age as the mothers and all the other Marys that are included. Many of them share the same names. So that's often why confusion arises. She's weeping. She wants to finish the burial of Jesus for the body was left in the tomb for a year. A year later, the women would come back, cleanse the bones and rebury the bones with the family members in a separate place. But she couldn't do it. 
She thought grave robbers had come. To add insult to injury, she who was already in deep grief and mourning because their master, who they thought was to be their savior, had been brutally killed that Friday. To make it worse, there's not going to be any closure. His body's gone. What's she going to do? The women who came in love to serve, they were unconsolable. Now, it's interesting, the word there for weeping, because when the angels and Jesus repeating that question ask, why is she crying? Why is she weeping? There's two words in Greek for weeping. One is to weep silently, just tears rolling down your cheeks. It's what we men do at, at, at movies when it, it touches our hearts. You, you try not to let it show, but you, know, you, know, you look over there, you know, and try to clean your eyes out. You do it quietly. This isn't that. This is the Greek word klio, which means to wail, to mourn out loud. You often hear Middle Eastern people to this day at funerals wailing and weeping. This is, this is the type of crying that Mary Magdalene was doing at the tomb. But then Jesus comes, not just the angels. And we don't know Mary didn't even respond to them as angels. She probably just thought they were two people dressed in white. But then Jesus comes. And we see, friends, that Jesus turns tears to joy. <laughs> tears to joy. There's nothing quite in human experience like tears of joy. That your heart can be so full and so joyous that you weep as if you're sad, but you're not. It's just the opposite. But it's a deeply, profoundly emotional response. I'm sure Mary continued to cry but the reason for her tears was completely different. Psalm 30, speaking of the human heart, makes a promise to people of faith. Psalm 30, a psalm of David. Sing to the Lord, you saints of his, praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Have you ever spent one of those sleepless nights where your heart is heavy, you're in darkness, confusion, grief, pain? You don't even want to sleep because you know that when you wake up that the pain will still be there. For a moment you might think that the loved one who's passed away, that they're still there and you dreamt the whole thing, but no, but no, they're still gone. And the darkness you get up, and if the weather's of a certain type like it was yesterday, we were able to step outside from cooking for the men's breakfast and watch a beautiful sunrise. Weeping and mourning and grief last for a season, friends. It may be a night, it may be a hundred nights, but God promises that in His time, joy comes in the morning. And we see the morning rise, the sunrise that Easter morning in John chapter 20. Beginning in verse 14, at this, she's talking to the angels. It says, at this, something causes her to turn. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? And he adds something to that. Who is it? You're looking for, 
Thinking it was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She is focused on fulfilling that labor of love, taking care of the body of her slain Lord. (laughs) Tell me where you've put him. It's powerful, she says that. Who are you seeking, Jesus said. Now that adds something important because I know when I cry, when you cry, when people in this world cry, it's for a reason. It's for a reason. Sometimes we're seeking the wrong thing. Our hearts are broken. As the corny old song said, we we look for love, but it was in the wrong place. We put our hope on the wrong thing. We trusted the wrong person. We have been hurt We have been betrayed. Our heart has been broken. We have been bruised physically, mentally, or emotionally. We live in a painful world. And this may be our response to that physical pain. Who are you looking for? She's looking for the wrong one. You say, but she's looking for Jesus. No, she's looking for a dead Jesus. He is not here Why do you look for the living among the dead? Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Jesus' questions cut right to the heart. And whether it's because of the darkness of the night, whether it's because her eyes are half blinded with tears, or whether it's because Jesus in his glorified body is not allowing himself for a moment to be recognized, he could do that. He did it with the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But whatever it was, she didn't recognize him. So I was a gardener. Just show me where his, his brutally murdered body is and I'm going to take care of him. But then it turned to joy. It says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. All she needed to do was hear her name from her master. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they recognize that's my shepherd. That's what happens in this moment. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic. John is an Aramaic speaker. He's writing in Greek, but he wants them to understand something. She cries out, Rabboni which means teacher. Well, it did, but we only see it used one other time in the New Testament because there was levels of respect for a teacher. A teacher who's almost a peer, who's close to you, you called them Rab, R-A-B. A teacher above you, you called Rabbi. But the master teacher is Rabboni. And that's who she calls out. Her master teacher is there, Rabboni. To continue to the end of the passage there, it says, Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for she's fallen at his feet and is grasping onto him. Don't hold on to me, for I've not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them, that he had said these things to her. 
As far as we know from Scripture, the very first person to see the risen Lord is Mary. Before the others, before Jesus appeared in the midst of the apostles, it was to Mary. And that's a precious thing. Jesus says, Mary, don't cling to me. We've got work to do. I believe that Jesus wasn't talking about something. He was half resurrected and he was just on his way to heaven and he was going to come back. I think returning to my God and your God, I think he's talking about the ascension. But he's telling her basically, we have 40 days. I'm going to be teaching and preparing you as the church for 40 days. There's time, but you have a job to do. Because the Greek indicates it's imperative. She has to go and take the message that the tomb is not only empty, but that Jesus is alive. The good news of Easter morning that turned her tears to joy. As we close briefly, we look at our tears. How do we fit into the story as we often do? The tears of Christians. Are there tears? Well, of course there is. God doesn't save us from the trouble of the world, but he's there with us. And it changes how we respond to the troubles and pain. We weep, we mourn, we grieve, but differently. And I believe the key verse for the differences between those people of faith in Christ and those who don't have it, the key verse that reveals the hope we have, the qualitative difference, is that familiar passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. People were concerned that Christians who through persecution or natural causes had died were going to miss the imminent return of Christ. So the apostle Paul, who'd only been in that town for likely two weeks in Thessalonica as he planted that church, he hadn't had time to teach or finish all of his teaching. So he writes to them, brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, a euphemism for death. Those who fall asleep are to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We grieve, we mourn, but as people of hope. For we know that season of separation, that pain is for a night and joy comes in the morning. We know we'll be together again. That God's children will be around the supper table one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb as the bride of Christ is filled. Let's look just a few things, that difference that makes being people of hope. The reality is that we grieve, but in our grief, we have rest. We have peace. We have a calmness. First, in our grief, we rest in his presence. He's with us. He's with us. Isaiah says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. It's repeated, Matthew 28, Jesus promised, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The presence of God is not something that you have to search for or climb a mountaintop and talk to a guru. The presence of God is within you and it's around you. You're in his hand. It's not that he's not there. It's often you don't realize it. As Max Licato, who we've enjoyed a wonderful Sunday school class with, Max Licato says of this, we are always in the presence of God. There's never a non-sacred moment. 
His presence never diminishes. Our awareness of His presence may falter, but the reality of His presence never changes. One of the beautiful names of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus is with us. You notice how Jesus' presence, the living Lord, changed Mary's grief from tears to joy? Oh, it doesn't dry our tears instantly, but what a difference it makes to walk through the valley of the shadow with our shepherd holding our hand. He's with us. Makes all the difference. Not only that, but in our grief, we rest in his power. (laughs) Power was displayed Easter morning. The power over death. That last enemy was vanquished. The slavery that we have to sin and death, the chains were broken. The power of God was displayed. And now you and I can live in happy times and sad times, live in the power of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, which guarantees your resurrection. Your people of hope. Your people of hope. The Apostle Paul, that was his great hope. He went through so many difficult times. He was eventually killed for his faith. But he writes to the Philippians church in uh, the church in Philippi in chapter 3 I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to live in that resurrection power, knowing that through that, somehow God's going to raise me to new life as well, because we are in Christ. Do you understand the power that is for living? And nothing can crush you or overcome you. Nothing is too great that you can do all things through him who strengthens you. The lives we live often deny that that power is there, that presence is there. You know, many great people in history, if you've read the biographies of people like Winston Churchill and so many others, all the way back to Julius Caesar, these great people often, the thinkers, the deep thinkers, were often prone to clinical depression deep, dark nights of the soul. Martin Luther was no different. He would go through terrible times, paralyzing depression. But God gave him somebody to help him. You see, when he became the great reformer, the monk who had lived his life for God, but blindly came to faith in Christ and became the great reformer that he was, he was, by the time he was 40, he was known throughout Europe and his writings were being read in secret in many places. The printing press made the Reformation possible as the writings of Luther and other reformers teaching that the word of God, not the rules of man that the church taught, that the word of God was of utmost importance. Well, somehow along the way, some of Luther's writings were smuggled into an abbey, a Cistercian abbey. And the nuns, secretly at night by candlelight, began to read Luther's writings, teaching the Scripture. And they came to faith. And they sent word out that they wanted to be rescued because they were prisoners. Simply put, they were all prisoners. Word got back to Luther and the other reformers, and they came up with a plan. At that abbey, weekly, a wagon would come in, and deliver 
for the sisters there, salted fish in barrels. You know how that went. The great escape. When the wagon left and the barrels were covered with the tarp, barrels were no longer full of fish. They were full of nuns. And they smuggled out these nuns. Now suddenly Luther and the men have these nuns on their hands. What do we do with them? Well, within two years, they were all placed in caring Christian households or they were married to Christian believing men, except for one nun, troublesome little nun. She was a spunky little 21-year-old nun, half of Luther's age, and her name was Katharina von Broa. And Katharina, they tried to marry her off again and again. She turned her suitors down flat. But finally, after being out of the abbey for two years, she let slip. She would consider marriage, but only to, only to Martin Luther. <laughs> Martin Luther resisted. He said, are you crazy? I'm, I'm perfectly happy as I am. But eventually it wore him down. When he was 42, she was 21. He said, okay, let's get married. And he wrote once famously, he decided to get married because thinking of God, he knew it would please his father. It would anger the Pope. The demons would cry and the angels would laugh. <laughs> I love that. And what a difference she made in his life. His household was full of joy and activity. She ran the family farm up every morning at 4 a.m. Luther called her the morning star because she was always up early working. And she supported them with her work. But when those dark nights of the soul would come, she often would find the key to unlock his depression and remind him of the truth that he was a teacher of. Of one of those events where he had forgotten the power of the resurrection, we read that Martin Luther struggled with recurring bouts of depression. Luther's wife, Katharina, was a spunky wife who often jarred him from his darkness. One time, when he was particularly in a dark pit of despair, Katharina dressed up as a grieving widow, wearing all black as if she was going to a funeral. When Martin saw her at the door, he asked, Are you going to a funeral? And she says, No, but since you act as though God is dead, I wanted to join you in your mourning. <laughs> well, that got his attention. And soon he got better. <laughs> it's an amazing story. How often, though, do we forget in our grief the power available to us, the power of the resurrection which gives us hope? And finally, not only, friends, should you rest in his presence and his power, but also his purpose, knowing that all things are working together for God's good purpose in your life and the life of those around you. Psalm 57, 2 reminds us, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Do you realize God has a purpose for you? Your life has a purpose. That means it has a meaning. That means you count. And all that's happening to you, God is working in you and through you to make you the person that you need to be to grow more like Jesus and to fulfill his purpose in your life. The famous passage in Romans chapter 8, we understand. And we know that in all things, good and hard, 
happy and sad. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It all fits together. It all works together. Close with a quote from Rick Warren. Rick Warren, speaking of this, says, Without God, life has no purpose. And without purpose, life has no meaning. Without meaning, life has no significance or hope. We have all of those from his presence and his power and his sure and certain purpose for our lives. So in those hard times, hear the voice of the Savior. Why are you crying? Who are you seeking? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word, Lord, which is like a sun coming up to reveal that those things in the darkness around us from which we despaired, Lord, by the light of the morning sun, they don't look so scary. They don't look so, so, so sad. We understand that, that Christ is here right beside us, that he never left us, and that no matter what we face, Lord, even in the tears we shed, that we do it with hope. Until the day, Lord, as your word tells us in the book of Revelation, that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But Lord, in this world, there is grief and mourning. We commit ourselves fresh and new, Lord, to do that, but to do it as people of hope, for we have hope in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the good news of Easter the impact it has on our lives this day and every day. We pray all of this in the name of our risen Lord. Amen.